My guest this week is the former commander of British forces in Afghanistan and former head of International Terrorism Unit at the Downing Street Joint Intelligence Committee, Colonel Richard Kemp. Colonel, thank you very much for coming on the show. My pleasure to be with you. So why has the situation in Afghanistan deteriorated so quickly? I think from the moment that um, President Biden made the catastrophic decision to withdraw unconditionally, irrespective of the security situation or the political situation, unconditionally withdraw US forces from Afghanistan. The current situation was almost inevitable. Other Western forces had to also withdraw because they weren't able to remain in the country without US backing. Um, and, and the signal it sent to the Afghan government, to the, um, the Afghan army, has resulted in what we've got now. I think the situation was made worse the decision was was made worse by one being implemented extremely quickly too quickly really for the afghan government to make new plans uh, and and get get you know recognize a new situation on the ground for which they could prepare um and secondly it was done at the height of the taliban fighting season which is when the taliban is at its most powerful uh, if it had been if if the withdrawal had waited until maybe late autumn or winter then I don't think we've seen such a fierce and powerful assault by the Taliban across the whole of the country. Do you think the Taliban planned their advance in more detail than the West planned their withdrawal? I'm sure they, they did. I'm sure the, um, the, the Taliban had a very carefully thought through plan as to what they were going to do, um, which, of course, included as a priority taking the, some of the cities and the provincial capitals in the north which was an area that had been a center of resistance against the Taliban when they previously governed Afghanistan. They never took the North before, even you know, at the end of their previous regime, they never took the North. And so they, they understood the necessity of holding onto the North or taking the North and holding it um, at an early stage in order to make their control of the country more secure because the Northern Alliance, which, which was a, an opponent of the Taliban in the last uh, the last time they were in control of Afghanistan, they, they received support from a number of different countries, including India, um, including uh, Russia uh, and, and Uzbekistan, etc., and other countries um, who wanted to see the Taliban fall. Uh, and once that area was taken and also uh, overtures were made for, for a long time now to Russia, China and Iran, their um, success became far more likely and more secure. So yeah, they they worked out a good strategy. They waited until the time was right to implement it, and they implemented it. Given that the US, the UK, and other NATO allies had given the Afghan National Army billions of pounds worth of equipment and training, why did the force collapse so immediately following the withdrawal of Western forces and the initial advance of the Taliban? Well, we'd been in... Um, we, we being Western forces have been in Afghanistan with a relatively light footprint for some time now. We hadn't been doing very much of the fighting. Most of the fighting was done by the Afghan National Security Forces. And in the last seven years alone, they sustained 50,000 casualties fighting the Taliban, 50,000 deaths, hmm. that is, fighting the Taliban, which is a huge number. But despite our small size and relatively relative lack of involvement in, in fighting, we provided moral support to them. We also provided practical support to them in training, logistic support, in the case particularly of the US, air support. Yeah, that, that was 
it was small, relatively small. The air support was very significant. The rest of our support was relatively small, but extremely important to their morale because they recognised that you know that they were they had a tough fight on their hands, and um, that you know the ultimate backstop, the ultimate guarantor of their success was the United States of America of all. And when that was withdrawn from them, and when US air support was withdrawn as well, that caused a collapse of morale, and not just morale in the armed forces, but also across the provincial governments, who had relatively tenuous loyalty towards the central government. And when they realized that the US had withdrawn its support for Kabul, they also reviewed the situation and decided it wasn't worth the fight. So that was that's the reason it happened. Um, you know, one, one shouldn't think of Afghan soldiers in the same way as British soldiers or American soldiers. They are very different. Um, apart from anything else, they are they're tribal people. Most of them didn't join the army to fight for, for Afghanistan. They joined the army to get paid uh, to, to have a job. And they, they often they weren't paid by the government in Kabul. The government in Kabul abused them, neglected them, often didn't pay them. And they had no, in most cases, they had no um, tribal allegiance to Kabul. Their tribes came first. The Kabul government, you know, what does that mean? Uh, it wasn't, it's not like, you know, Britain, it's not like the US. It's a different, totally different concept. And so I think that um, those, those various factors combined led to Afghanistan falling with not too many shots being fired. There was some intensive resistance in some areas by some soldiers, but not, not that much across the country. Many cities just fell without, without any fire being exchanged. So when the announcement of the withdrawal was made in July, do you think that there was a significant failure within the intelligence communities at finding such little evidence to suggest that the Taliban would take over the country so quickly? I think, I think the failing was not so much in the Taliban's capability, which I think was fairly well understood, I think the sophistication of their strategic planning was perhaps not understood. Um, I think the failing was in, in assessing the, the likelihood that the Afghan forces uh, would, would, would remain fighting strongly after US withdrawal and Western withdrawal. And, and that was a failure to understand what motivated the Afghan security forces and also the state of the morale of the Afghan security forces. And the same goes, I think, for a failure to understand the fragility of the, the links between the central government in Kabul and the regional governors in, in the different uh, provinces in, in Afghanistan. So it was, it was a failure to understand that. We, we understand that really because we know that, you know, only last month President Biden said that he said publicly that the, the Afghan government could stand on its own two feet after the US left and that the Afghan army... Um, significantly outmatched the Taliban in their ability to fight. Um, and our own Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, was saying only, I think, a few weeks ago that the Taliban would not be able to beat the Afghan National Army. There was no path to, to, to military victory, he said, I think, with something like that, his words. So those, those statements indicate they were given the wrong information. They were given the wrong assessments by um, their, their intelligence staff and probably their military staffs as well. Now, in, in the House of Commons debates today, we heard most strikingly from uh, Afghanistan veteran and chair of the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Select Committee, Tom Tugendhat. And 
one thing that really struck me was when he said that in reference to President Biden's address on Monday, that those who have never fought for the colours they fly should be careful of criticising those who have. Now, having served over there in Afghanistan, how did you feel listening to Joe Biden essentially absolve himself of responsibility for the current situation and then pass the blame onto the Afghan National Army? Well, he said at one stage in his speech, he said the buck stopped with me. Mm. And throughout the speech, he was explaining why the buck did not stop with him, why everyone else was to blame. President Bush was to blame. Uh, President uh, Trump was to blame. The Afghan government was to blame. The Afghan security forces were to blame. He could he blamed as many people as he could for his own failure. Uh, and, and, and I thought it was a disgraceful speech by a president of the United States. And I thought it was even more disgraceful when the commander in chief of the US forces, President Biden, said, why should Americans be expected to fight for Afghanistan when the Afghans won't fight for themselves, strongly implying cowardice among their forces, who we had fought with side by side for a long period of time. And British and Afghan soldiers had died alongside each other and fought alongside each other. And I mentioned before, there were 50,000 uh, Afghan soldiers killed in the last seven years. That does not, to me, indicate cowardice or an unwillingness to fight. Uh, I would say it indicates quite the opposite. What he was doing was to absolve his decision to put the to, to basically abandon Afghanistan and leave in the worst possible way, not just abandon it, but abandon it in the worst possible way and leave these people on their own and then blame them for cowardice, I thought was shocking. So do, do you think President Trump's withdrawal plan with, uh, that he created with the Taliban, which was also unanimously approved by the United Nations Security Council, led to this situation, as many, including President Biden, have suggested? Uh, President Trump's plan really is neither here nor there, in my opinion. This mm -hmm. was President Biden. He's been in office something like seven months now. Mm -hmm. he, he says he was bound by the Trump plan. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't bound by the Trump plan. He spent most of his time since he'd been in office reversing many, many actions that President Trump put in place. Many policies, many presidential orders have been deleted by his presidential orders. Um, so to say that he was bound by something that Trump did was just uh, beyond, I think it defies description in some ways. Um, having said that, I think President Trump's withdrawal proposals were also flawed. Um, that, however, it, they, they did have the, I think, you know, the advantage to an extent of, of restricting, placing restrictions on the Taliban, which they had to adhere to before we would withdraw. So they didn't just give the Taliban a free hand as Biden did. They, they imposed restrictions and the Taliban had to agree to, to not um, allow Afghanistan from again becoming a safe haven for terrorists. Um, now, to me, that that itself really is is largely illogical because I, I wouldn't believe any agreement the Taliban signed or said or anything. Mm. Um, but at least he placed some kind of constraint on them and, um, you know, didn't think that he'd just given them a free hand. So, you know, under his plan, it might have been a bit different. I don't know. I, I can't, I, you know, it didn't happen. So one can't say. 
but it was a mistake. And, and, and what we have, are faced with the reality, not of what Trump planned to do, but what Biden actually did do. And in an article for the Wall Street Journal, Donald Trump's uh, vice president, Mike Pence, wrote that the Taliban leaders understood that the consequences of violating that deal that they had agreed would be swift and severe. Now, since the change in administration, do you think the, those words, that are, they are swift and severe, do you think that's now an empty threat? Totally. There's no, there is no, there's no, no, no risk of the Taliban violating anything for, un, under the Trump administration. All they want to do is get out of there as rapidly as they can. And that's exactly what they are doing. And we're seeing the consequence of that. We're seeing the desperation of people who are trying to cling on to the side of moving military aircraft. And then in some cases, falling off the side um, to their death on the ground after the plane's taken off. Now, People don't do that sort of thing unless they're really desperate. And their desperation flows from their knowledge of what the Taliban did last time they were in power and what they know the Taliban is going to do this time they're in power. So I'm afraid that obviously, you know, the Taliban are completely to blame for their own actions, but allowing the Taliban to get into a position where they can run the whole country uh, is the responsibility, fair and square, of President Biden. So as a result of all of this, what does this mean for the future of the United States, supposedly claiming itself to be the leader of the free world? I think uh, the, the credibility of the US has been, I wouldn't say permanently undermined, but certainly significantly undermined for a long time. The US debacle in Vietnam, when they withdrew under pressure as well from Saigon in 1975, was a catastrophe for US authority around the world. And the US didn't really recover from that for 15 years until they invaded Kuwait to get rid of the, uh, the Iraqis in 1991, so 15 years later. And I think we're looking at at least that period of time, maybe longer, before America recovers from this. It's been such a blow to Western prestige, and not just America, not just Britain, but to the whole of NATO. I mean, NATO has been a strong alliance back in the days of the Cold War. And it's played a major role in, in maintaining peace in Europe for many years. But NATO now looks really a bit like a little window dressing. Uh, it looks like NATO is America because we're told by the British Defence Secretary that when the US were pulling out of Afghanistan, he tried to assemble a NATO coalition without America. In other words, those NATO countries who were willing to remain in Afghanistan when America left. He got no takers, no takers. So, you know, what's been described as the world's most powerful military alliance really just equals the United States of America. Um, and I think that's been hugely damaging in undermining NATO. And, and I think the consequences of that are very, very, of all of that, are very, very severe. President Biden said he was going to uh, withdraw from Afghanistan, partly in order to focus more against Russia and China. But this withdrawal has had the opposite effect. Russia and China are sitting there grinning ear to ear, rubbing their hands together, absolutely delighted about what's happened. And, you know, the, any, any deterrent effect that Western resolve had on their activities in their own spheres of influence or anywhere in the world has gone. They know pretty much now they can do, they, or they'll certainly think they can do much of what they want to do with relatively little fear of retribution from the US or reaction from the US. And um, they, they may or may not be right, but it will encourage and embolden them. It will make the world a less safe, less safe place because 
you know, it may be that the US does intervene in, in future years, but but that, you know, it will probably create destability and conflict because they will be willing to take that that extra risk in uh, carrying out actions within their spheres of influence in, in the case of Russia and China. And those countries who are in the authoritarian sphere of influence, who we had hoped to entice into the Western democratic sphere of influence, will also be looking at the situation and will be saying, well, why would we do that? Because you know the, these people are fair weather friends we can't trust them when the going gets tough they're going to go yet with russia and china they're going to stay they're more reliable and i think that's the way it will be seen and that will be a, an impact across the world i believe and closer to home do you think this could be boris johnson's suez moment i don't think it is um i mean i think johnson has a certain amount of blame for this we don't know what conversations went on between him and uh Joe Biden, when the withdrawal was being finalised. We don't know how much he attempted to influence him to do something else and how much he, to what extent he obviously didn't succeed, but we don't know how much he tried. Uh, and, and, and I think whatever he had done, whatever he had done or said, any actions he took, I think, would have been irrelevant because, you know, we, we, we are no longer as a country in a position to stand alone in this situation. Um, we don't have the power to do it. If we had, and if we had remained when the Americans went, then that might have led to a different outcome. But actually, that not, isn't really Johnson's responsibility. You know, the, the, the reason we lack the power is because of decades and decades of savage defence cuts, which mean that our forces are relatively powerless, in, in, you know, without the Americans, relatively. So, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't think it'll damage Johnson too much. I think it'll be far more damaging against President Trump and of course, the reason he did this was for electoral benefit for him. He made a promise in his manifesto and um, he decided very early on to do it. And it was because he thought it would garner votes for him, both at the election that he's just won and also at the midterms, which is actually a very you know, disgraceful reason for putting people's lives at great risk and in some cases consigning people to the graves. Uh, we'll see whether it actually does have that effect. I mean, people's memories are quite short. It might be that in the US, this won't live very long uh, in terms of voters. I think it will certainly live a long, long time around the world. I'd like to ask you about a comment made by the Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sir Nick Carter, to Kay Burley in an interview with Sky News on Wednesday. He said that you have to be very careful in using the word enemy in reference to the Taliban. Do you agree with this assessment? I would frankly and liberally use the word enemy in relation to the Taliban, I must admit. He's obviously looking at it from a different perspective, but they're clearly our enemies, they, that we've been fighting against them for two decades. Their action, and perhaps inaction, led to 9-11. 9-11 was planned and organised from Afghanistan while they were in control of the country. And 9-11, let's not forget, was, was the worst terrorist attack ever, in which more British people were killed than have ever been killed in any other attack anywhere in the world. So, yeah, if they weren't our enemies, I don't know who was. And, you know, they, they, they're not there. They haven't, there hasn't been some kind of peace deal where they have, you know, risen up to become the government through, through, through a deal. They've simply stormed into Kabul and declared that they're running the country. Now, that doesn't give them any legitimacy. They, they overthrew a democratic, sovereign government, which we were fully supporting, which we had put in place and were fully supporting. Um, so, yeah, to me, they're, they're the enemy. 
And the idea that we should recognize them as a, as a legitimate government, I think is also would be a misjudgment if we did that. Uh, it'll be like recognizing the Islamic State when they run ran part of Syria and Iraq as the as the governments of those the government of those areas. It would give them legitimacy. It would give them authority, and 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 as well as that, it would inspire jihadists everywhere to rise up against us more than they are now. There's there's many jihadist insurgencies all around the world who are hoping for just this end, and it would inspire them to do so. It would inspire individual jihadists and groups in our own country. It already has. What's happened now is already inspired jihadists uh, and re-energized them. And I think recognizing them as a legitimate government in these circumstances would be a, a grave misjudgment. So has the government made the right decision in accepting a minimum of 20,000 refugees from Afghanistan over the course of the next few years? I think when you take it in the context of the overall refugee problem in the UK, hmm. it's something that is complicated and has to be judged. Hmm. And we have been taking into this country thousands upon thousands of people who are not actual um, refugees, that if anything, that many of them, not all, but many of them are economic refugees. And when you, I wouldn't say overwhelm the country, but certainly introduce vast numbers of people who actually are not fleeing from, for their lives, that makes it much more difficult when you have to look at people who are fleeing for their lives. And so I think, you know, it's, it's a problematic situation. I think what we should do, first of all, we should certainly allow in and bring in personally as many as we can of those people who are working for the, for the British forces or for the British embassy or whatever else in Afghanistan, those people have got, you know, they've got a mark on their head and they're, they're being hunted down now by the Taliban. We should get them to safety, as many of them as we can. As to the other people who are flooding out of Afghanistan through Iran into Turkey and onto Europe uh, and, and through other routes, I think consultation must take place between the nations to decide how to handle this, what will probably be a vast number of refugees. And, and I don't think we should be simply settling them all in Europe. There are lots of um, countries in the region, and particularly in, in the Middle East, Arab countries, they're co-religionists in many cases, where you know, we should be pressurising them also to accept some of them as refugees. So we should play our part. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I think you know, to say Europe is the default for where they go, I think is not the right decision. And you mentioned in particular those who have uh, helped us and other NATO allies. So why is it taken until now to expedite the visa requests, particularly of the Afghan interpreters who have helped us over the last 20 years? Well, I think the government, as very often is the case, dragged its heels over what they call as considered difficult decisions. And why were they difficult? Because the, the issue of immigration into our country is so divisive and they undoubtedly had an eye to that to the criticism they would get which I, I think was misjudged I don't think there really has been any criticism of this decision but they had to be dragged into it and you know I think a number of generals for example and, and other military people have, have really forced their arm in a way and, and it's the right decision I think I think you know ultimately it's the right decision it would have been better if it had happened earlier because many of the people we're now struggling to get out could have come out could have come out long before do you see the oncoming refugee crisis as a result of this being a catalyst for an increase in the terror threat here in the US and across Europe? I think um, it could be that, because among 
the refugees, there will be people who are jihadists who want to carry out attacks against us. There will be, but in every case, in every similar situation, there always has been. Um, and, and obviously, we have to be careful. It's very hard to filter those people out, though. Um, but I don't think that's going to be the main cause of um, terrorist attacks against us. And, and the terrorist threat has increased. The Director General of um, MI5, I think a day or so ago, made that clear that the threat, the terrorist threat has increased, as, as did the US Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as a result of this situation. So I think that the, the reason that it's increased is, is really twofold. First of all, because, as I kind of touched on before, Jihadists in this country will be inspired, motivated, re-energized to carry out attacks. Um, and they will be recruiting like crazy. This is a great recruiting tool for jihadists. Many, many have been celebrating this victory in different countries of the world, including our country. So the, the problem here in Britain will increase. On top of that, the Taliban will allow al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, both, both of whom have a strong presence in Afghanistan at the moment, will allow them to operate in that country. Um, they, they're joined at the hip in some ways. Al-Qaeda and the Taliban in particular have been for many years, are more connected since we went into Afghanistan than they were before. So they will allow that to happen. And, and thousands and thousands of jihadists from around the world will also pour into Afghanistan through Pakistan or wherever, whichever route they choose to take. There they will meet, they will train, they will plan, they'll prepare, and they will launch terrorist attacks around the world from Afghanistan, which is exactly what we were there for 20 years to prevent. And that problem still exists and has just increased now. So I think the net effect of all that is that we will, we in the West will face probably a higher terrorist threat than we faced uh, when Islamic State was, was at the height of its power. And we all remember the, the car rammings, the stabbings, the explosive attacks, the gun attacks across Europe that were inspired by or ordered by the Islamic State. We will see this all over again. Maybe not immediately, but we will before very many months or years have passed. So do you think we will see a large-scale terrorist instance to coincide with the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks next month, especially as a number of the very senior Taliban leaders were detained by the US at Guantanamo Bay? It's something that we should be prepared for. And, and, you know, we shall, I'm sure, and I've no doubt our security services in this country will do everything they can to try and prevent that happening here, as will people in other European countries and, of course, the US. But I wouldn't write it off. I wouldn't say it's going to happen. It's a possibility. I think Al-Qaeda hoped to, to do something like that for, for many years, to, to hit on the anniversary. Now, they're, very, they're very interested in anniversaries. So I think that will be an objective of theirs, whether they... Uh, try it and if they try it whether they succeed I don't know I hope not so as, as a soldier it's your responsibility to take the orders that you are given and to follow on the orders of given to you by the government of the day now when you were first deployed to Afghanistan take moving that to one side did you feel that it was the right thing to do to intervene absolutely I did I thought mm. it was exactly the right thing to do and to be honest we didn't have a choice Mm. Um, this was this was a terrorist attack on the US that took more lives than Pearl Harbor in 1941, which then led to the war between the US and Japan and ultimately dropping two nuclear bombs in Japan. 
And this was a bigger attack in terms of the numbers killed. Uh, so it would have been impossible for America to, to ignore that. And certainly it would have been impossible for us to, to fail to stand by their side because, first of all, we are their closest allies. We had to be on their side. And secondly, so many Brits died in the attack as well, as I mentioned before. So, yeah, I think, I think there had to be a, a reaction to that. And I, I don't think there was any other reaction apart from to invade Afghanistan. The Taliban were given the opportunity by President Bush to remove the Al-Qaeda and turn Al-Qaeda in. They were given that chance. They declined it. So an invasion took place so we could bring it about. And I think that was the right thing to do. With, with, undoubtedly, it was the right thing to do. It's perfectly reasonable to question the way that the campaign was conducted after the immediate removal of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. I think, you know, there's, there's many, many problems with that campaign. But I, I think we should have remained in the country long enough to prevent it again becoming a safe haven. Because once you got rid of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, you then leave. That, that doesn't really solve anything because there they are straight back again. I'm not saying we solved it by the, the way we conducted the campaign, but nevertheless, we should have been there. We should have stayed there for a, for a lengthy period of time. And how did the people you served alongside in Afghanistan feel about the current situation? Do, do you and do they feel that uh, as a result of this withdrawal, that many of the sacrifices made were in vain? I can't speak for anyone else. I don't feel mm. they were in vain. It was a terrible tragedy that we lost so many, over 450 mm. British soldiers killed in Afghanistan, many, many more really seriously wounded amputees, serious brain injuries, PTSD, loss of sight, loss of hearing, all of these terrible things. It, they, they were, you know, they were a high price to pay, but I don't think their sacrifice was, was in vain. By, by being in Afghanistan, by preventing it from becoming a safe haven for terrorism again, which they did, in 20 years, no terrorist attack was launched against the West from Afghanistan. So they succeeded, they achieved that mission. And in doing so, they saved the lives of many people in the West, including in Britain, who would have been killed by terrorist attacks had Afghanistan remained in the hands of Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and later the Islamic State. So I, I, I believe that saying that they were wasted is not only wrong, but it's also disrespectful to people who put their lives on the line, knowing the risks, knowing the severe risks themselves, for, for what I consider to be an extremely worthy cause. Now, I can see that people don't understand that, but I, I think it's um, it's profoundly wrong to, to disrespect them in that way. Um, my, my final question to you is, where do you see Afghanistan in a year's time? Do you see there being further conflict between the West and the Taliban, or do you just see the Taliban making inroads and becoming accepted as the government of Afghanistan? I think it will, we'll, we'll see how, you know, we can't predict the future. I can give you a mm. rough idea of what I think, mm, um, and could well be entirely wrong, but I would say um, that Afghanistan will now come into the sphere of influence above all of China. Mm. Uh, and to an extent, Pakistan, of course, China, Pakistan, Iran, and Russia, enabled this situation to come about. They funded, armed, and supported the Taliban, all of those four countries, particularly Pakistan. But they all did for their own different strategic reasons. And I think, you know, China, which is closely linked to Pakistan, uh, will exploit Afghanistan in terms of, you know, uh, parts of its Belt and Road Initiative, in terms of plundering the country for some of its natural resources. 
and so I think, you know, I think if Afghanistan under the Taliban has a future, it's probably aligned with China more than anything else. I think we will probably carry out some, potentially carry out interventions in Afghanistan in the future if our intelligence identifies specific threats from Afghanistan to our country. And I think I think that will be, those will be in the form of probably more likely sort of relatively infrequent airstrikes, probably mainly carried out by the US. Beyond that, I don't really see uh, any any particular future in terms of cooperation or re-intervention, re-engagement in Afghanistan by our country. I don't think there is any political will now, and there hasn't been for a long time in this country, to, to remain or to re-engage in Afghanistan. Colonel Richard Kemp, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure.